Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming out, and those of you, if it's your first night out of the three, welcome to the St. Basil the Great Parish Reboot. If you've been coming all three nights, there's really no special prize for you, but there's a lot of gratitude, so I want to thank you for coming all three. So here we are uh, on the third night, and tonight's going to be a little different than the other two. So a parish mission is about kind of renewing the hearts and giving you, getting you on mission. Parish reboot is about allowing Jesus to take us in places we've never been so that the parish can be something brand new for both to please the heart of the Father as well as to meet the new needs around us. And so tonight, it's all going to culminate in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament tonight. So those of you who have never done adoration, that's totally fine. Jesus loves us when we do things for the very first time because we're all the more childlike all the more poor, all right? We feel insecure and awkward. We don't know what we're doing. And Jesus says, great, you'll be vulnerable enough for my love to actually get in there. It's going to be wonderful. Those of you who do it all the time, you get to do it again. And if it's been a while, guess what? We're coming back tonight either way. So uh, that's how we're going to end the night together, is about 350 people doing adoration together, which is a really beautiful thing because how many people uh, on what was yesterday was Cyber Monday. What is today? Giving Tuesday, I think it is called. Giving Tuesday, we're going to give Jesus our hearts. So, little recap. First night, I began with a Mother Teresa quote. Mother Teresa was worried that her nuns didn't know Jesus. We talked about if these nuns who give up all earthly belongings, holy hour every day, serve the poorest of the poor, She's worried they don't know Jesus. Like, what do we think? Right? And then we talked about how Pope Benedict said something similar. He says, what makes you a Christian isn't ethical norms or lofty ideals. What makes you a Christian is an encounter, meeting, knowing the person of Jesus. And when you encounter Jesus, he generates a way of living that we call Christian. And so we began talking that night about, what well, we have sacraments, we've got scriptures, we've got church teaching, we've got the holiness of the saints. How do we not know Jesus? I'll say it again, what I said the first night, which is that we have more access to scripture studies, church teaching, prayer groups, more sacraments have been celebrated in the last 50 years in the United States than ever before, and most people in the pews and with Roman collar on don't know if we really know Jesus. How well do we know him? How do we know if we know him? Have I met him? What's he like? I don't know. And why is that? Why don't we know that? Because what's been missing is our hearts. And we realize good art, beauty, gets us in touch with hearts. So your favorite song that you used to sing as a kid, there's something in there for you. We've watched several commercials, right? Movies, the beauty of creation. Beauty can get us in touch with our hearts. And that place that gets awakened is right where Jesus has a plan for us, where he wants to help us interpret what's going on. We also looked at pain and affliction, that sometimes it's the wounds and pain that we've suffered in a broken, fallen world that Jesus is waiting for us right there. And because our hearts are scary and confusing, what do we do? We shut them down and then just pretend we're good little boys and girls. 
And Jesus says, do you want to talk to me about the thing? And we're like, no. And he goes, okay. Because he's very kind. He won't force, coerce, pressure, manipulate. It's not our God. Our God is tender. Remember the Gospel of Luke. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us. God is not impatient to fix us. We're impatient to be fixed. He's utterly patient. Because more so than removing our problems, he wants to teach us an amazing lesson. We are loved through our problems. You are not fixed and then lovable. You are already lovable. Whether you're suffering from an addiction, past wounds and ideas, fears and anxieties, bankruptcy, whatever's facing you, deaths in the family, holiday season, doubts about life and goodness, you're already perfectly loved in your imperfections. That's the deepest healing we all need. Then we went to the second night, right? And the second night we talked about littleness and poverty. All of us are so small. Our hearts are such like little children crying out. We're poor, meaning we're limited and dependent. We have big needs, big dreams, big desires, and yet we don't have the ability to fulfill this on our own. And so we have to wait. But we also saw how Jesus enters those same places. When he became flesh, when he became one of us, he took those real human realities on and suffered them with us and for us. As if to take you by the little hand and run you into the lap of the Father so that the Father can pick you up and hold you right there to say, there's no need to be afraid. I enjoy providing. That's why I am a father. And I'm a good father, God says. We also talked about yesterday a little bit that your hearts matter. I reinforced that yesterday, if you remember. I just said, you know, maybe there's some of you out there who thought, okay, I mean, come on. It's whatever. And it's like, well, if it hurts you, God cares about it. If it bothered you, God cares about it. There is a sense, by the way, like, yeah, there's a playful sense of teasing and good jokes. Don't think that I'm telling you that every time there was teasing done, you got to go do six holy hours. <laughs> no, there's a playful sense there. But most of the time, my experience is people weren't given the space and the freedom to say that hurt. Well, I didn't like that. And so our hearts fell into darkness and things in darkness grow sideways and twisted. And then we get older and we wonder why we have these issues. So your hearts matter. And then remember, I, I condemned the movie Lion King with one fell swoop. <laughs> Except that cool computer version. You got to see it if you haven't. Well, you don't know if they're real lions or not. You knew, but I didn't. I got Where the big seductive lie about our culture and from the devil is Hakuna Matata. Like just whatever. It doesn't matter. Don't take it too seriously. Just brush it off. Many of you have been doing that for decades. And uh, Dr. Phil's famous line, how's that working for you? It's because, as the scriptures say, cast your cares onto him, for he cares for you. So just a little clarification then. Between here and heaven. All right, so between here and total union with God, with the communion of saints, in total bliss, you and I have to heal every wound, sin, and pain in our lives. Every single one of them needs worked out. Because if you bring into heaven imperfections, sin, resentment, all the brokenness, 
unhealed memories, you've brought in something broken into heaven, and now heaven's no longer heaven. And so, in between now and union with God, we all got work to do, and everyone's got stuff. And the blood of Jesus is more powerful than any stuff you've ever experienced. And his power to redeem and heal and restore and bring glory is so amazing that St. Paul says all the sufferings and evils that have ever happened are as if nothing compared to the glory that we're waiting to be revealed. Now, St. Paul was not poetic. He's being realistic. The glory that's in store for us outweighs every suffering tragedy, stress, endurance, pain, and evil. That glory is Jesus' heart. He is the image of the invisible God, St. Paul says. And so all of that beauty and tender love, when we see it, God willing, we'll say it was all worth it. It was totally worth it. It was totally worth it. But between now and then, Jesus is like, you know that thing that when you're driving alone, that memory pops up, or you see that thing on TV or hear a song, you go back there, and you just quickly want to ignore it, and it just keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. We got to slow down. We got to invite him in. And he never comes in to hurt us. He never comes in to destroy us. And so tonight, the pledge of future glory is one of the titles of the Eucharist. So that infinite, ineffable union with the Holy Trinity that awaits us in heaven, the pledge of that glory is given to each one of us in the Eucharist. Because perfect, tender, Amazing love enters into us in the Eucharist and we give ourselves back to him and the two becoming one in that sacred moment at Mass is the pledge of future glory. This is the poetic gesture of God in the church of what will happen for all of eternity where we are caught up into the dance of the Trinity. And the dance is the Greek word for the Trinity known as perichoresis. Remember the very remember yesterday's commercial, the dad dancing? And you didn't know that that was an image of God dancing with us and inviting us to join. And if you're anything like me, it takes a few liquid courages to get you into the dance. But nonetheless, we get there. We'll get there. So let's pray. And then I want to begin with another commercial. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you could just check your phones, because the distraction is that. So please check your phones as an act of kindness to each other. Father, in this church right now, in silence and stillness, we are here. Shine your warm light upon our hearts. Every person here. 
Just want you to take a minute and just locate your heart. Maybe you're restless. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're just hungry. You just, I want something tonight. Wherever you're at, just be aware of that and receive it. Wherever you are, God can reach you. Nothing is too far away from him. So just receive that part of you. Allow that to be there. And just take a moment and be with God. Father, you give us desires. You put longings on our heart that are never bigger than you. So give us the courage to be vulnerable enough to receive fulfillment. Give us a taste of what fulfillment feels like. You want us hungry, and so you give us the bread of life. You want us thirsting, and so you give us the waters of eternal life. And we hunger and thirst for healing, for redemption, for transformation, for forgiveness for ourselves and the ability and grace to even be willing to forgive some of the people in our lives. Lord, you don't hate us. You aren't neutral. You are wildly and embarrassingly so in love with us. Send your Holy Spirit through the intercession of all the angels and saints. Bless us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Your hearts deserve to be moved and awakened. So here is a commercial for you. There's something beautiful about losing love and getting it back. Right? He got to see his wife of many years back. If that's the, if that's the weeping on a commercial, what will the resurrection be like? When all the dead are back, not as they were, but in glory. What will it be like to be fully alive? Like, that's something we all want, right? Like, don't we want to see what like, our loved ones will look like fully alive? See, art puts us in touch with our heart, but only Jesus shows us the plan for fulfillment of our hearts. Love is back and that moves me. What does that mean? Jesus, what's that mean? It means deep within us, he planted a hope to get love back. To get our loved ones back. To get parts of our own story back. So that brokenness, sin, evil, and death don't have the last word. The resurrection has the last word. And in the Eucharist, which is the power of God entering into our bodies and meaning to touch our hearts, it's as if Jesus is saying, I want to pour my power over you and in you so you can taste the resurrection now and live with the hope where it will be fulfilled. And so desires are not naive, selfish, and immature. Our desires, when seen in the light of Jesus, are prophetic.
They tell us of God's plan. Why is he a father? Because he likes to give his sons and daughters good gifts. Remember that teaching of Jesus? Who would ask for this and you get a scorpion? They're like, well, no one. No dad would give their kid a scorpion. Well, if that's true of you, the wicked generation, he says, meaning you're broken and mess things up all the time, how much more true of our heavenly father? This is why we want everyone to know Jesus. This is why we do not want anyone to be other, someone other than a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? So that the collection can go up on Sundays. No. We want everyone to know Jesus Christ because only in Christ is every desire of the human heart going to be fulfilled. In this world, no. Here we get enough tastes of it that our hearts would burst forth with desire, zeal, and hope for in the world where it is fulfilled. Our Creator and our Redeemer are the same God. He who created you with these desires is the one who plans to heal, transform, and fulfill them. And it's not like wishful thinking. He comes to show us this all the time. So for the last two nights, we've been talking about the heart. I've been doing everything I can with movies, commercials, just shy of juggling and doing everything I can to help you realize, sharing my own story and everything, to give you permission to finally listen to your hearts. But tonight, we put it back together. The sacraments, the scriptures, the official church teaching are like the vehicles or the envoy by which the beauty and healing of the Trinity comes to us. It's objective. It's from God. It's guaranteed. The Eucharist are Jesus at work. The scriptures are God's word being spoken. The official teaching of the church are the Holy Spirit speaking on issues. It's official. It's objective. It's there. But it loses all of its power when our hearts don't connect with it. When we keep our hearts over here. Satan, right, the accuser, a father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, has no power over the objective means of God. He can't stop sacraments. It's not like Satan's going to get every Bible and rewrite it and be like, ha, ha, ha. He can't stop the scriptures. He can't stop the official teachings because it's God guaranteeing it. What he can do is get you and I so afraid, so confused, so discouraged, so alone, so full of shame that we shut our hearts down and never experience the redeeming, healing power of Jesus. That's why the battle is over your heart. The battle is over what will you do with your stuff I told you two nights ago about that gangbanger drug addict who was actively trying to murder his girlfriend when she wiped blood off of his forehead. I was telling a friend of mine, she, and she said uh, that I told you guys the story, and she said, you know, I think God gives you a very dramatic life so you can tell these stories. She goes, because it's just exhausting. <laughs> but he said the day he was finally arrested, he said, I was so calm. I said, why? He goes, I was done running. Didn't have to hide anymore. It was over. Like a Pepsi on a hot summer day. Ah. He was like, oh, good. I'm caught. Good. Just whatever. We don't have to be caught for our stuff to be healed. Jesus gives us the freedom saying, every day, would you bring it to me? 
Would you bring that part of your heart to Mass on Sundays so I can speak into it with my scriptures and I can touch it with my body and blood in the Eucharist? Will you go to the confession vulnerably, not with rationalizations and justifications like, ah, Father, I gossip a little bit, but who doesn't, you know? And (laughs) That's not a confession. That's like talking to someone at a bar. A confession is... I have no ability to justify myself. And I'm taking the great risk that God will meet me with mercy. Here's all my junk and the reasons why I'm busy hating myself and hiding. Lord, what do you have to say to this? And he says, I love it. Psalm 51, a humble, contrite heart. You will not spurn, O Lord. What kind of heart does he spurn? A haughty, self-justified heart. Why? Because that heart isn't true. It's not living out of the truth that we are little and we need him. And so the sacraments, the scriptures, the official church teaching, and our hearts are meant to be like a wedding, the two becoming one. John Paul II called it a dialogue of love where we take these things deep into prayer and open our lives and Jesus You are the truth. You are the life. Show me the lies. Show me the death. You are the way. Show me my confusion. What am I meant to notice here? And over time, you will become someone who knows the voice of God. It's not automatic. It's not on our own. We need a community who says, hey, I'm not going to hide if you don't hide. Okay, let's not hide. Does that mean I have to tell people in the pews all my stuff? No, that would be crazy. But it does mean to say like, I know that you're not okay and you know I'm not okay. So let's pray for each other. Let's get dressed up for Mass on Sunday to remind us this is a dignified place not to pretend everything is fine and hide it under everything. So in order for us to really enter in, tonight what I want to do, RCIA is here, but for all of you especially is I want to revisit the church is teaching on the Eucharist. Because if I asked you what is the Eucharist, you all say, Jesus. I said, good job. I said, what else do you want to say? Uh, a nun told me it was the body, blood, soul, and divinity. I read it in every book I pray with. Great. What does that mean? It means it's very special. Okay, all very true. But we're going to revisit it today a little bit. and We'll tie it all together. So, First thing you need to know about the Catholic Church and Jesus himself's understanding of the Eucharist. It's not a symbol. In fact, in America, a great author named Flannery O'Connor said, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. It is not a symbol. It's not some sort of poetic gesture. We believe very truly that the bread has been has becomes truly his body and the wine becomes truly his blood this mysterious absolutely transformation we use a fancy term called transubstantiation trans meaning across substantial meaning really real what this really was is now gone across to become really something else hence the transubstantiation language But it can help more if we sit with Jesus' words, okay? 
Gospel of John, chapter 6. He's done the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves. He has a huge number of followers. They're like, this guy is it. Right? Like, like rivaling Joe Olstein. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing, right? So, and Jesus says to all of them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Now sit with that for a minute. You've left your home. You've been journeying. You've seen this guy perform miracles. You've seen him debate with religious leaders and come out victorious. You've seen what he looks like at prayer. You've seen him be kind to people caught in adultery and corrupt men and women. Forgive them and give them life. Power flows out of this man's body. You've seen miracles. And now he looks at you. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. If in your mind you're trying to do a little dance, like, well, maybe could it have just... That's, that's probably the right response because it's weird. And you know what they did in the scriptures? Huge numbers left. Now in other incidences, when people didn't understand him, like with Nicodemus in the beginning of John, Jesus actually clarifies. No, like Nicodemus is like, do I have to re-enter my mother's womb? He says, no, no, I don't mean you re-enter the mother's womb. So Jesus knows all about how to clarify a metaphor. Jesus knows how to say, oh, listen, I was using like a hyperbole, getting a little extreme, catch your attention. You looked a little sleepy, so I thought I'd get your attention. He knows all of that. Do you know what he does? When they walk, begin to walk away or begin to quarrel among themselves, he intensifies the language. So it says that the Jews begin to quarrel among themselves. Right? Kibitz, bicker. They're like, what is this man talking about? We just left our deli on East 9th Street, and now we're down following this weirdo. And he says, Amen, amen, I say to you. Amen, amen is like, buckle up, I really mean what I'm about to say. And he says it again. Flesh, food, blood, drink. So it's very clear in the scriptures, this is a big thing for Jesus. What happens is a lot of the followers leave. They're like, nope, can't do it. What that means is our attitude and belief around the Eucharist is a decisive moment of whether we follow Jesus or an idea of Jesus. Right? So if the followers left him, because they didn't like his teaching on the Eucharist, it's a clear airmark and de decisive moment of you're either with Jesus and you accept this, or you're not with Jesus and you leave him. Now, do I say this to wag my finger, condemn, shame, manipulate, and coerce the countless brothers and sisters who are Protestant who don't believe in this teaching? Not at all. I say this to hold it up, though, to say, we really need to pray for the faith that Jesus wants us to have and not what we think is sane, comfortable, and impressive. We really need to say, Jesus, whatever you want me to believe, give me that faith. Even if it means my life becomes crazy and I, like with childlike wonder and awe, I believe you show up under the appearance of bread and wine, even though it's no longer bread and wine. 
If that's your plan, then give it to me because I want all my stuff worked out by your power so that when I close my eyes in death, I'm ready for the infinite beauty and fulfillment for all of eternity. Because all my junk is too big for me to figure out and heal on my own. And if the Eucharist is the way you said you're going to remain with us to bring us healing, encouragement, and love, then Jesus, give me that faith. You're all old enough to forget the religion tests. Don't give us the right answers anymore. Come to God vulnerably. Come to God openly. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to believe. Lord, I don't even know what it looked like to believe. Lord, I totally believe. You be you where you are, but open with Jesus, and he takes care of the rest. So, the further question is like, how does this happen? Like, okay, we can see that he's saying this, but is there some way we can understand this a little bit further? Well, thanks be to God for saints, theologians, and philosophers in our 2,000-year tradition that have given us examples and things to help us process sacred divine mysteries. Will we ever fully understand it? No, it's a divine mystery. But there are ways by which we can clear out some of the intellectual debris and be able to enter in. So what's one of them? Well, one of them is this. Words. We can use words for descriptive purposes, right? Carpet is red and fading. Thank you all for this. Um, You know, it was cold today. Words can be descriptive. But in certain settings, words can be effective. So if I was really your boss and you were an employee and I said, you're fired, like it or not, you really are fired. It affects the reality. I was watching the Cavs last night. They look great in the third quarter, by the way. I was watching the Cavs last night. And if one of the refs says it's a foul, like it or not, they are deputized to make the ruling that's a foul or to give a technical. If an umpire in baseball says you're out, you're out. Because they've been deputized to have the power so that the words they use affect the reality. That's human words. What about God? Remember at the beginning of creation, God said with his word, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be all the creatures and the creepy crawly things, and there was creepy crawly things. His word affects reality. Who is Jesus? He is the word made flesh. He says to the little girl, Talutha kum, meaning little girl arise and... Sure enough, the dead girl comes back to life. He's sleeping on a boat. They interrupt his nap. He gets up in the storm and says, be quiet. In all of nature, the storms are quiet. Because he is the word of God and his words affect reality. So the night before he died, he took bread and said, this is my body. He took a cup with wine and said, this is my blood. And then in Pentecost, Jesus deputizes the apostles to continue the words of institution. They lay hands on priests and other bishops. And for 2,000 years, the lineage is continued so that properly deputized men can say, this is my body. And bread transforms into the body of Christ. 
And we can say, this is my blood, and it transforms into the blood of Christ. Because we're so smart, holy, charming, and witty? No, because we were given the grace of ordination to build up the body of Christ. It's guaranteed by Jesus so that his church can continue to heal and grow. But most of these teachings can be pretty abstract. It takes a while for our hearts to kind of give a yes. So what do we need? Sometimes we need miracles. And to our great help, God the Father in his love has given us miracles over the last 2,000 years at different times. One of the most recent miracles happened in the 90s in Buenos Aires. Happened to a parish priest, and the bishop at that time later became Pope Francis. But at this time, he was an auxiliary bishop in Buenos Aires. And I have a little eight-minute video. You're going to see actual footage of the miracles. You're going to see the scientific, rigorous testing it went. It was brought up to New York. An atheist doctor, not knowing where this came from, they said, what do you see in the microscope? Do testings. He tests it. You're going to hear his findings. You're going to realize that coincides with other Eucharistic miracles that happened other parts of the world 400 years beforehand. And you're going to see that science has been able to verify the miracles and the miracles verified Christ and the church's teaching. So here is a video for us to watch. Thank you, Jesus, for helping us. Amen. So when you go to adoration or you come to Mass, we're not zapped with total restoration. You may be like, that's the least impressive thing you've said for three days, Father Ryan. <laughs> We're all very much aware of this. But we kind of carry the, the shame with us somehow, right? That like, well, if it's true flesh, it's really him. Like, where's the ta-da part of this whole thing? I've shared with you before, but when I was 19, I was invited to help out at a youth retreat at my home parish, St. Marion Hudson. I was a jazz major at this time. I hadn't been to confession since my first Holy Communion when I was eight, so 11 years. And um, my parents had just gotten divorced. And so there was that part of my story. There was all sorts of dynamics in my home, in my friend's group, and majoring in jazz. Let's just say I wasn't following the way that would lead towards uh, a joyful, peaceful heart. We'll go with that. Okay. And so I'm getting there, and uh, uh, I'm helping out. I'm supposed to take out the trash. So that was my big job for the weekend, take out the trash. So that's what I'm focusing on. And three high school girls at this time said, hey, I was Ryan at the time, not Father And Hey, Ryan, have you gone to confession yet? And I thought, well, I haven't gone since my first communion. I said, I'm here for the trash, but thank you very much. You know. Uh, and they said, well, we'll just, we'll wait in line with you. Oh, great, that's what I want. Thanks. Uh, so I go, I went to confession, made the best confession I could at that time in my life. I was honest I, with what I could know what to say at that point. And he said, go in front of the uh, blessed sacrament and say five Our Fathers. That was my penance. I didn't know what the blessed sacrament was. So I asked the youth minister, what's the blessed sacrament? He goes, that's adoration. I said, got it, that's that room, okay. So I go and I start saying the first Our Father, get through decently, but I could feel myself kind of, something was moving. Get halfway through the second, our father, and I start crying so hard. And I cried for over two hours. 
All because I felt from the Eucharist Jesus say two words to me. I know. I know. And I knew with that I know that he meant I knew what it was like to be me from the inside out. I know when you felt lonely. I know when you felt confused. I know when you've been felt powerless, helpless. I know when the fear set in, it was paralyzing. I know when you felt angry. I know all of your sins, but I know you. And it was the first time I felt seen, known, and loved. And it cracked open something in me. And what I wish I could say was, I never then sinned again. And I've, you just have this very holy priest now. Ta-da. <laughs> but we're not zapped. But it changed the direction of my life. Ended up quitting trumpet. Pursued acting for a little bit. Left that, went to the seminary. See, when you receive the Eucharist or you're in adoration, Jesus does not take you out of the human condition. There ain't no cure for being human. God wants you to be human. He's happy you're human. He wants to meet you in your humanity. He wants to bless your humanity. He wants to love your humanity. In fact, he took it on to say, look, I'm right here with you. I will not redeem you out of the human condition. I will heal you through the human condition. And so the grace of adoration and the grace of receiving the Eucharist helps our minds, our wills, and our hearts engage more fully in the dynamic process of healing. It doesn't bypass that process. So we still have to struggle with fears in our surrender. We still have to struggle with the restlessness and trying to avoid the places that are vulnerable. We still have to learn to love and bless the parts where we feel small and poor. We still have to learn how to call upon God out of need and depend on him. But through it all, we are now not alone. Jesus is there through the Eucharist and the sacraments to take us by the hand and say, let me show you what it's like to have God as your dad. Let me show you what it's like to have Mary as your mom. I want to give you the relationships I have. And all of this is his slow but insistent journey towards fulfillment and happiness. And this is what Jesus wants to be. The path towards our fulfillment but he begins right where we don't want to begin, where we are and as we are. Some people say the hardest year of marriage is the first year. This is why they think that. Because you get married thinking you're going to start up here and then you look at your spouse after a week and you say, you do that? And you start way down here. And you're like, ugh. Or the first time you discover, oh, we aren't able to have kids. Or when you lose a job, and all of a sudden you feel like all the nervousness and anxiety that goes with that. You start very low. And this is the trick. Jesus doesn't need you to journey up the mountain. He says, call upon your dad. Stay small. Stay needy. Stay vulnerable. Stay dependent. The father loves to pick up little kids. And so we get to experience 
the tender caress of mercy right where we need it most. The place of our poverty and littleness. And it fills us with happiness. Here's Pope Benedict. This is the quote we're going to end on and then I'll lead us in prayer. The happiness you are seeking, the happiness you have a right to enjoy, has a name and a face. It is Jesus of Nazareth hidden in the Eucharist. Only he gives the fullness of life to humanity. With Mary, say your own yes to God, for he wishes to give himself to you. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.